Hi, y'all, and welcome to the table where everybody is welcome to take a seat. I am your host, Isaac Sanders, and today in the studio, I got my auntie with me. <laughs> it's Jamila Jones. Jamila the Jones. Jamila Jones Jones. All of the Jones. Hey. Hey. Do you want to tell the the listeners? I was going to say audience, but, but you got they an can't audience. see me. But you got an audience? <laughs> I do. You got an audience. Auntie J going to keep you together. That's all right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I am Auntie J, a.k.a. Jamila Tamira Jones. I met Isaac, what, forever ago? We've met like before because ancestral connection. So we've known each other for quite a while. Um, and so I'm excited to be at the table today. I work, and that's all you need to know. And I've been to school. Cool. And that is also all you need to know. And I have a family and I am from somewhere. Everything else will probably be discussed further along in the day. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally like the most like, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, obscure, but like, yeah, yeah that's well, right. You need that's to know I'm a real person. Things. I exist and everything else is uh, on a need to know basis. And you don't need to know me. Sure as hell don't. <laughs> All right, so we're just going to jump right into appetizers because, mm-hmm. you know, we have the table. Yes, yes, so, yes. So since today we are going to be talking about resistance and things of that nature, these questions are involving resisting, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So who is your favorite resistor and why? Oh, man. Okay, so the academic answer, my favorite resistor is Ella Baker. Okay. I love the way that Ella Baker organized, and I love the way that she specifically organized black youth, Mm -hmm. um, and that she believed that particularly black young folks have the power and the agency to organize and strategize as they please. Mm -hmm. And reading a lot of biographies about her, I'm really, really just inspired to resist in the way that she did and to organize in the way that she did. Also, Ida B. Wells, like, Ida B. Wells is, like, a family member somewhere, I know. Like, if you give me one of them ancestry tests, you're going to find Ida B. Wells, even if I have to put her there, because she's incredible because the way that she wrote about such evil things, right? Mm -hmm. So she's an anti-lynching activist, an anti-discrimination, anti-racism activist. But as a black woman at the turn of the century, that meant things like death threats. That meant that meant all kinds of very overtly dangerous things. It still does. But back then it meant overtly dangerous things. Like people had hits out on her and stuff. So the way that she was able to face that fear and clearly write about the depravity of lynching um, in a way that made her internationally recognized, it makes me want to write with that kind of honesty all the time. So um, those are two of my favorite academic resistors. Uh, My favorite non-academic resistor is my mother hey mom i love this yes oh, oh god don't make <laughs> right me cry this is gonna be yeah this is gonna be a lot <sighs> um my mom is the perfect example of what resistance looks like on the ground okay right of taking what she has and saying, how can I maximize this, whether or not other folks are going to get their shit together? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do I meet the immediate needs of my immediate community? Um, so I'm privileged in a lot of ways to have 
a mother that may not necessarily understand everything about me, but knows that she is going to address my immediate needs. And so I kind of, I guess that's where, that's where my desire to meet people's immediate needs comes from. That's the kind Mm -hmm. of activist and organizer I am because my mother will listen to me talk about all the systemic injustices and all the complexities. And she's like, and how are you going to get that bill paid? <laughs> so, right. so let's figure out how you do that. And so that's one of my favorite, like, I guess, non-academic or whatever yeah. um, resistors because I love the way she does it. Oh, my gosh. That was so cute. Like, literally, that was <laughs> so sweet and so, like, <sighs> I love your mom. I don't even know her. She's great. She doesn't like people, but I'm I'm sure she loves you too. She doesn't like people. She doesn't like people. Yeah, like, she's just like, okay, yeah. hi, nice to meet you. I'm going back upstairs. Look, yes, that's yes, how yes, my yes. be sometimes. Um. Anyway, my next question is: How does liberation feel to you? Like a oh, like a like feeling of liberation. Like what is that? Ah. Uh, um. Liberation feels like flying. It feels like it feels like an out of body experience. It feels like knowing that you that your existence is revolutionary. Um, it feels like silence. It feels like noise. Like when I'm around a bunch of my friends and we're just laughing and kikiing and eating and shouting and yelling at the TV. Mm-hmm. That's what liberation feels like to me. It also feels like sitting in my room in absolute silence and knowing that I am present in this world even when people would prefer that I'm not. Um, okay. And so yeah. that is what liberation feels like to me. Um, and my work in liberation is making sure that I and my peoples are able to feel those feelings as much and as often as they can. Okay. Yeah. I like that. That's mm-hmm. good. That's really good. Because it's hard, you know, to be like, what does liberation mean? And and a lot of folks will automatically jump to, like, freedom and no laws and, and political and all that shit. But, like, I'm really... I also am not a fan of, like, capital P politics, of, like, mm-hmm. electing officials and all of these things. Because I feel like the whole system of politics is flawed um, in that it really stifles your imagination about what liberation can be. So I'm really just, I don't know. I'm much more of an empath in that I think about liberation and in, in how it feels and mm-hmm. how, what can I do to make sure I feel this feeling as often as I can. Yeah. Yeah. That's real. I think about this a lot. Like, just how the idea of feeling liberated Mm -hmm. is like something that isn't like isn't given to certain like marginalized identities especially because like whenever somebody talks about like liberation i like read it on a piece of paper and like the way that i read it it's not Mm. for me like it Mm -hmm. just doesn't seem like it's for me and so like i've always had this feeling or like this thought that like maybe liberation is like when you like, get to eat your favorite meal mm. after, like, not eating for, like, a couple of days. Yeah. Or, like, just being able to breathe and, like, not feel like the world is falling on or collapsing on you. Like Moments. Li- yeah. Like, it's a lot more moments and, um, like, wrinkles in time kind of thing. Like, right. Where it's just like, oh, my gosh, I got to actually feel liberated for once. Right. Which I think 
a lot of people take for granted a lot. Like whenever everything feels good, um, when everything feels bad, when things feel good, it feels really, really good. Really, really good. (laughs) Yeah. And like this last two weeks of my life, like literally have been like the worst. And like yesterday I got to like sit at home and play video games and I thought I was going to like die from happiness. Liberation. Yeah. I thought I was going to die from happiness. I thought I was going to die from happiness. That I'm is the definition so of liberation. <laughs> Dying from I happiness. I thought I was going to just be so happy that I exploded. And that that is liberation. Oh, gosh. Liberation when you die from happiness. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Okay. Final question. <laughs> Why are we friends? You know, I've been thinking about this since you asked me, and that is something that I really wish people asked their friends Look. on <laughs> really an hourly basis, but particularly in the times that we're living in, because um, you got to build intentional community. It's just like, mm-hmm. why are we friends? Because we've been friends for so long, and we're scared to admit that we're actually terrible for each other. That's a reason. Or we intentionally work to create community that makes us better. Yeah. Um, that is why you and I are friends, yes. right? Because I personally intentionally work to make communities that make me better, that make me happy, that push me, that press me. And how did I meet you? I don't even know how. Okay. I think it Literally, just happened. It was at the same time. This is was on the last episode. Anthony could not remember, and I remember so vividly. So, oh, <laughs> let me know. Okay. so Learn me. Because we all met up because through Shantae, uh-huh. We went to the, um, we went to, what is that place called? The Eldridge? <gasps> yeah. And it was that day I met you, Anthony, and Darius. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh my gosh, my peoples. Because like, yes. we're just sitting there, we're just talking. Black Martini and it night. Was good. It was just a good time. And that's when you like directed me towards Cody. And like, yes. my life started falling together. Yes. So quickly. That's how we met. Mm-hmm. That's how we met. It was met. a good time. Mm-hmm. And it's the people I like to be around that I don't remember how we met because for me, that is a signal of some other kind of like, I'm so weird. Um, That is a signal of some kind of like otherworldly kind of knowing mm-hmm. that like I've known you before this. Right. And I have a lot of people in my life that I'm like, I've known you before this life. Let's be friends again in this one. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's definitely why we're friends. Um, and I also think that healers often attract people who need healing. And mm. we have been that for each other on both ends yeah. of the spectrum. It's been very reciprocal. <laughs> like yes. Very reciprocal. So, yeah, I think that's why we're friends. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And I think... Now that you've said it and put it into words why I ask, like, that final question, it does make a lot of sense because, like, inten- like being intentional with your friendships or at least understanding that, like, surface-level friendships aren't going to cut it right now. <laughs> like, they surely Especially are not. not right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard for me as, like, a person who's, like, been very transient and moved a lot because mm-hmm. of my military background and stuff like that. Yeah. Where... I would become friends with people out of necessity because it was like, I have to have friends to survive. I have to make all of the friends in the world. Mm-hmm. And which is great. And I have a lot of cool people that I've met. But right now, specifically, intentional friendships are very important. So, like, thank you for putting like a point to yeah. like my well, thought Thank you process. for asking the question because it's it forces you to be 
honest in a ways in a ways that we are not honest mm-hmm. you know which is why back to Ida B Wells cuz the the way oh, that I she writes honest. in honesty right mm-hmm. we're just not we're not I mean she writes so clearly like this number of men have been lynched that we know of mm-hmm. You should want to stop that, and if you do not, you are part of the evil, right? And so just the the level of honesty that she carries in her writing, I can only imagine the level of honesty that she carried throughout her life. Right. And that's the kind of honesty that I wish we all carry with us. Mm-hmm. And asking that question forces that kind of honesty. Hmm. And it forces better answers than just like, well, because you're a really cool person. Like, no, that's what you wrote in my yearbook. But right. I want to know, like, why? <laughs> why are we friends? And you might come to an answer like the one I just gave you. Or someone might give you an answer like because there is no one else here. Right. And you kind of have to force yourself to be really honest about why you're in community with certain people. So the, the question itself is bomb. Yeah. So mm-hmm. thanks for asking the question. Well, With that bomb question, we're going to take a break. So we'll be back very soon. Breathe, everybody. Breathe. (laughs) And we're back for With Dinner is Served. So what we're talking about, which is kind of, we're still on the theme of, like, resistance and um, understanding, um, like, how resistance shows up in spaces. Mm -hmm. So... Jamila just went to the African American History Museum, the Smithsonian, the like really new one. That's really really awesome. Ooh. That's amazing. Yes. And I went uh, over the summer when I was in DC. So we're gonna talk about that real quick, just to like encompass <laughs> what that was, because in that building itself is just like pure resistance. Like yeah, everything in that building was like donated. Like there's so much to there's it so much. because it's just a whole bunch of blacky black blackness. Yes. Put into one space. We're going to talk about it real quick. Oh, you got a lot of hope for this. Uh, no, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about this for hours. This is going to be a long but conversation and keep, I'm here for it. But to keep it together. Yes, to <laughs> we keep have it to together. keep it together. Right. Uh, what is your favorite exhibit? Which one was your favorite exhibit? Outside of like the whole entire thing, because we all know it was the whole thing. The entire thing. Um, First of all, I'm glad we're having this conversation because we have lots of abstract talks about the museum knowing. And I'm holding full well that there are so many black folks who will never go to see that, who will never get that experience in their lives. And I know that with all the talk of it being booked for years out, there are still black folks who will never get to see that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to talk about what is there, to talk about what you're going to see, and to kind of have this conversation to kind of break the wall of, like, access in a way. Yeah, it's Um, really important. Also, tidbit, if you're ever going to the museum, if you are a service personnel person, like, so if you're a military, police officer, fireman, any, like, service jobs or government service jobs, you can get in for free at any time. Mm. They will literally let you in just by showing your ID, which I think is really important and a lot of people don't know. So, like, if we want to make this more accessible and make this a thing that everybody gets to go to, like, hook up and link up with people who can get you in there at any given day because mm-hmm. my military ID got me in there three times yes. and I'm not even like I'm a dependent so yeah, that's one yeah, thing yeah. like you have to know how to work it too because the museum doesn't say those kinds of things it's just doesn't. like we don't want people to be like oh, so many people in here but like literally if the whole entire military showed up and like showed their IDs all of them would be let in. in so yeah. that's also something that 
people need to know. <laughs> they need to know, and they need to know that they um they do ticket entry. So, I would context. I was at a conference for Black women who um, plan and craft and create, and one of the women sitting at our conference, I went with two of my friends, um, is from D.C. and was like, oh, I have these tickets. I've been so many times, and we're just like, what? Do you have three tickets? And she's like. As a matter of fact, I do. And handed us three tickets to the museum. They're timed tickets, so you get in at your specific time. But they also have, like, a will call line, so Mm -hmm. where if there are... if there are spaces available for you to get in, you can. So those are all kinds of ways to get access to the inside of the museum. And, of course, they have, like, group tours and all that stuff. Um, so long story short, we lucked up yeah. on the opportunity of going to the museum because at that point we had just decided that we were just going to admire it from afar and not be able to get inside. It is pretty from a distance. It's beautiful, particularly because its location. It's on the National Mall, so the same place where the George Washington, not museum, monument is, and the Jefferson Monument, and insert white man here monument. Um, And then there's the Museum of African American History, and it's beautiful, and it sticks out in an amazing way. So you go into the museum. The main part of the museum is a trip through time. And you step into an elevator and you literally go down into time. So you go back in time to the beginnings of um, of the the... The, the, the stealing, the taking of Africans to different parts of the world and particularly to what is now known as the United States of America. Um, it is incredible. It is an incredible thing. First of all, I'm already a huge nerd and I already love museums. Mm-hmm. So this museum by itself is already leaps and bounds beyond any museum that I've ever been into. Right. So there's three main levels. There's the level that tells you um, from like slavery to reconstruction Mm -hmm. and then goes from like reconstruction to civil rights. And then that goes from like the 70s and 80s to the present. Mm -hmm. So those are three separate levels. The first level is traumatic. It is difficult if you are not in a mental place to see those things. I would suggest that you avoid that altogether. Those things being actual chains from actual slave ships. Those are the kind of artifacts that you will see. You'll see actual, um, actual torture mechanisms um, that were used against enslaved Africans. You will see those kinds of things. You will see records and records and an endless number of, of, of names and nameless records of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, it is traumatic. It is scary. Um, and it's something you have to be mentally prepared to do, um, particularly because it's usually crowded. It's a museum. It's a big space. Um, we went at a time on a rainy day, so it wasn't as crowded as it could have been because yeah. we were there at just the right time. But it is still a very, very heavy experience on that bottom floor. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was something that I needed to take a breath from yeah. and then go back to the rest. Um, what was the question even? Because it's just so much the most what the most striking part for me. Yeah, your museum? favorite. Your favorite. Oh, man. Um, favorite exhibit. I mean, favorite in what way? The, um, let's like say what favorite brought me the most joy. joy. Most joy. Oh, man. <sighs> yeah. 
the whole top floor of the museum <laughs> that took you through like the 80s to the present, right? Yeah, because that that's good. got Barack Obama and Oprah, and then you see the the older black folks who are reminiscing over their favorite TV shows mm-hmm. that are that are highlighted as like these these pinnacle these pinnacles of African-American life, um, Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, all of these things that are so woven into the fabric of African-American life are are no longer told that they're not important. They're in a museum. Right. Right. So Jet and Ebony and the magazines that are literally on your grandma's so table. So many Jet magazines. So many. So many Jet Like, magazines. did anybody else want to be the Jet Beauty of the Week? Because that was one of my goals. Like, I was trying as, a, as like, a teenager and probably younger than that to be a Jet Beauty of the Week because <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness, I need this in my life. And I think that something like that, like to carry that memory and to say, this is important enough to be in a museum. Mm -hmm. This is important enough to be in a museum that is celebrating African-American culture. Um, I mean, that that was incredible. That was that was incredible. The recreation of um, the set of the Oprah show. That was so pretty. Yes, it's so so beautiful. beautiful. And I don't use the word classy often because I think it's classist and gross. But... If there were a definition of classy, it would be the Oprah exhibit and it would be the exhibit dedicated to Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have her clothes. I mean, it's just it's just incredible. Yeah. It's it's absolutely, absolutely incredible because mm-hmm. those are those are things that are like seared into our memory as like millennial black folks. Yeah. Like the dress that they have in the museum is the dress that Michelle Obama wore um, election night 2008. So this yeah. black and red dress. Yeah, yeah. And, and that picture is everywhere. The picture of Obama, Barack, Michelle, and Sasha Malia, like, waving to the crowd of mm-hmm. this endless crowd of Democrats after they'd won the election. That picture is everywhere. It's on our calendars. It's on it's on special editions of Essence covers. It's on our T-shirts. And that dress is in the museum. Right. I mean, it, it, it was incredible. That's amazing. No, it was like, incredible. I'm thinking about, like, when you just mentioned that picture, I'm thinking about how it's just on my grandma's coffee table. It's everywhere. Because, like, any, any black home in America has, a like, a picture of... The Obamas. A shrine. A shrine. To to be completely honest. A A shrine shrine. to the Obamas. Right. That's that's a lot. I think um, my favorite exhibit, although it was in the, like, bottom level of the floor, Mm -hmm. because I am not a nerd necessarily when it comes to museums, but I am fascinated by um, resistance history. And, Mm -hmm. like, I really liked the, the... Kitchen counter, not the kitchen counter, the um, lunch counter, the lunch counter, Greensboro, North Carolina. Yes, and they had yeah. all of those. They had this interactive um, table thing that you could basically like look at all these di- different like lunch counter like resistance stuff, and it was so cool to see places that are p- places and people that I know like from fi- like family ties. Like my aunt Daisy is like mm-hmm. amazing, and she got like honored by the NAACP. Wait, so, so like, your aunt is in the museum? Yes. Uh, well, she's on, her name is in the list of like the people who did the Wichita, Kansas. Like, so she's sit-ins. in the museum. So she's basically in the museum. Whoa. It's not yes, yes, yes. like no, and that's like it. one degree of separation. So no, like, she's I'm in, in the museum. So she's um, in it. You're <laughs> in the museum. She's in the museum. We're all in the museum. We're all we're all in it. And I'm your friend, so like I'm also we're in all in the museum. That's right what that means. We're all in it. But it's like fascinating to see how. A lot of the times people talk about these, like, um, 
intense moments and specific people in history. Um, we are always talking about Martin Luther King or Martin Malcolm X. We're talking about Rosa Parks, like different people, but they gave you everything. Like, everything and everyone. The most insightful, like one, I think my next question was, um, which one like was the one that gave you the most visceral reaction? I think, <sighs> I think the one that killed, like not killed me, but like, made me feel some type of way was the fact that they had like a really in-depth look at like what happened with the Tulsa race riots mm. and because like being in Tulsa and be and working kind of in the reconciliation center and like doing tours and like knowing exactly what happened and how it was a massacre and how it was like just to disenfranchise black and brown people like further like for this museum to sit here and be like these are like transcripts and these are things that we have that like literally the reconciliation center didn't have like mm. I was just like yo this is like what I want this center wanted the center to be I wanted it mm. to be more I wanted to be cared about more but because you know it's blackness and right. people don't fund blackness mm -hmm. it's really good to be in a space like it literally I was in tears because it was just like somebody actually cared people don't fund blackness which is also something that I'm gonna get to the visceral reaction question in a minute but what mm -hmm. also brought me the most joy is because people don't fund blackness <laughs> lots of of the artifacts came from people's families. Right. It was incredible to see a lot of the artifacts that were the most powerful. If you look at the at the information card, it said from the family of, gift from the family of, right? Mm -hmm. So of course there were giant gifts that were like made possible by Oprah's donations, right? Mm -hmm. There were things that other museums gave to this museum. There were things that some universities gave to this museum in the archives. But most of the the exhibits were gifted by people's families. Right who found out that this was going to be a museum dedicated to them and said, well, here, you can have my uncle's Bible that he carried with him during the riots. Mm -hmm. Or here, my child made this poster that says justice for Trayvon on it. Like, you can have this poster. You know, like the, these incredible things that that would be sitting in your aunt's trunk somewhere is now, like, in a museum. And right. that was one of the most amazing things for me the idea that like no yes politics of museums and and government funds and shit but please understand that we still build it ourselves <laughs> we still build it ourselves mm -hmm. because a lot of the artifacts that you're looking for came from our closets right which is i mean absolutely incredible it uh so the visceral reactions um what you should also know about the museum peoples is that there is an entire wing of the museum, an entire corner dedicated to um, the life and death of Emmett Till. And that is a very sacred, personal part of the museum. You cannot take pictures. You cannot take video. None of those things are allowed there. And that's a conscious choice, right? And because I'm a nerd, I also was really, really informed about the process of the museum and the conscious decision to say, okay, who do we who do we memorialize in this kind of way, mm -hmm. right? Do is it Rosa Parks? Is it Martin Luther King? Like who do we, who do we on the civil rights um, floor of the museum really take the time to put a full wing um, in dedication to? Mm -hmm. And the decision to make that person Emmett Till um, was incredible to me. There are videos of his mother speaking about his life and her life and about. 
um, the last time she saw her son, right? Because we don't, as black people, we don't get the the privilege of being recognized as somebody's baby, no. right? And so she talks about her son and the last time she saw her child and finding out that her son was missing, finding out that her son had been killed, finding out that her son had been found and viewing his body and making those decisions to make his body um, viewable to the public in an open casket. And so it's very much like a funeral procession. It really is. Um, And then you come up to the actual casket, right? The actual casket that his body um, was in on the iconic Jet Magazine cover picture. That casket is in the museum. Um, That caused a lot of pain. Um, And the pain really came from watching older black folks experience that exhibit, Mm -hmm. um, who were either children or teenagers during that time. And to actually see a lot of their reactions, they kind of... You can't actually touch the casket, but the way that a lot of folks were like reaching and then turning away as if they could see like something was triggered. Right. Like they could they could see his body there. Yeah. Um, And that was just I mean, it's giving me goosebumps right now. I mean, it, it was it was incredible. And that was that was emotional. Mm-hmm. I have three because I have I'm, I feel things. Um, The second one would have to be around the exhibit that Isaac was talking about and that I'll talk about a little bit later, so I'm going to breeze through it right now, is the um, the dedication, the exhibit, the, the whole part of the exhibit that's dedicated to free black families. Yeah. Um, and the things they were able to build and things they were able to do and the towns they were able to erect. Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, yes, yes Nicodemus, it. Kansas. Um, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. Right. And then um, in the museum... The space is large, y'all. It is gigantic. So when I'm telling you that these are things that are in the museum, in the museum with space left over, (laughs) is the house, the actual one-room house of a free black family. I'm a very spiritual person. I'm one of those Christians who is like anti-capitalist and pro-ho and Jesus was brown and poor type things. Um, But I recognize ancestral power as well. And I, it's also a house that you can go inside. You can go inside. And so I walked inside of the house, and immediately something pushed me out. Mm-hmm. Something said, you are not ready for this. Nope. Walk around. Yeah. Get yourself together and try it again. And then once I walked inside, I was like, this is why. The, like, you can you can smell what was cooking in the, in the on the stove. You can – there's the sense memory there is so strong. Mm-hmm. The, the level of resistance just standing in the house of a free black family. Yeah. Right. And not just free in the sense that we are free. Right. Um, a time where everyone else around you was enslaved. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what did that mean? That love that home meant safety, that home meant home in a lot of ways. People were born in that house. People died in that house. Um, and that house is now in a museum. And it's it's big for what it is, but you're also it's also quite likely that you've driven past one of those houses in the country, those houses that are kind of like old and dilapidated and sitting way far back off the highway. Yeah. Um that's what that was. Mm-hmm. 
And that was incredible. But I'm going to move past that because that's going to feed into the next question. The third thing and the most traumatic thing for me, there is a segregated train car in the museum. Yeah, that train car is a lot. Yes. On the second level of the museum that's dedicated to like segregation and, and the Old South and all of that stuff, really segregation was everywhere. So everywhere is the South. So the uh, Americas and American segregation is a segregated train car. It was being renovated further so that um, we couldn't walk in when we went. But I understand that you can walk into that train yeah, car. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't going in, but when I was there, people you could were walk walking in. through. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And tell me, Isaac, if you, if you felt the same. It smelled like racism. Something about that train, There's it triggers some sense memory. Yeah. Walking up to that train, it smelled a certain way. Like, I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Um, I'm from Georgia, um, and everything that comes with that, yes, I'm from Georgia. Um, <laughs> it smelled like racism. There is, it just smells like the Old South and I don't know how they they kept that smell intact <laughs> when restoring and refurbishing, but like segregation and people who are from the deep south understand what I'm talking about when I when I speak about it, um, like old corner general stores run mm. by old fat scary white men um, with Confederate flags on the back of their trucks. It smells like Vidalia County, Georgia, where they still call you colored. Um, it triggered a lot of things for me being from the South. Um, it smelled the way Jeff Sessions' voice sounds. Yeah. So you Jefferson Beauregard <laughs> Sessions, um, his voice, he has a very, right, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. He has a very Southern, the South will rise again kind of scary white man voice. It's the voices, um, think of like Django. Like yeah. when they had that like one scene with the KKK mm-hmm. and like all of those accents, like that, mm-hmm. that's how that train smelled. That's how that train smelled. And if you're an empath and into like sense memory and if you're from the South, you understand what I'm talking about. But that caused a very like rippling visceral, visceral reaction. Like I had to sit down. I had to get myself together, dry my tears up because yeah. it was a very, very... um scary thing yeah the train itself just didn't feel right like yeah. i don't mm-hmm. like i didn't go in it when i went because one the line was ridiculous but like the line was mostly just like white people walking through it mm-hmm. a lot of um people of color black people who were there like i remember i heard like this like 60 year old man be like i'm not stepping foot on that train that train is literally a gateway to hell and i was like that's a lot. But, like, at the time, like, mm-hmm. I now that I think about it, like, just the idea it. of being stuck in in that time, like, being, like, teleported back into something that, like, was and still is, and to still be is. clear. But, like, was a time where it was, like, fair and fine to do this kind of segregation. It's like whenever I went to the Civil Rights Museum in um, Memphis. And we were walking through a part of it, and it was uh, segregated. It wasn't. A, it was a school bus or a bus. It was the Rosa Parks bus. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through it, and I like started crying. Like I didn't know why I was crying, but like just the idea and the feelings that arose in me in that moment were so much. It was a lot. It was a lot, and I could see why that man didn't want to go inside of mm-hmm. it because it was. He said it was the gateway to hell. I it was like, wasn't what? it though? Because it it smelled very wrong. It did not feel right. It was um, 
and I wouldn't want to experience. Okay, so I want to ask you a question. Okay. Because when I was there, I feel like that was the day that they had put a cap on white people, and so I was very excited <laughs> because huh? it, it was there were white people there, but um, definitely in the minority of people. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you had an experience where there were a lot more white people there when you went than I did. So yeah. what was like that like experiencing the museum? Uh. I don't know how to explain it because at the same time, like, me being, like, a person who's just like, oh, yeah, everybody needs to know their history. They need to learn all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like, there were certain parts of it and certain things that I was seeing where I was like, I don't want any white person to, like, understand right. this. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, reading through that and going through that museum, like, I think it's important for everybody to know what black history is and Mm -hmm. I think it's very powerful for it to even exist Um, and at the same time I'm getting a completely different experience than a white person's ever going to get I'm getting a completely different experience than any like other non-black person's going to get because I'm connected to this this is my lineage this is my bloodline these are my people Mm -hmm. and and it took me a very long time to kind of process I think it was like the third time I went where I was like I'm okay with white people being here because they're not going to steal this from me. This Mm. is one thing that they will not be able to take away from me or appropriate or try and turn into their own. Because, Mm -hmm. yes, it is a part of everybody's history, but this history is in my genes. This is in my blood. You can put as many Botox injections as you want to in your body. You will never have this, this experience and these feelings that I have. And, I mean, it's so hard thinking about this and, like, just watching people go through it and not mm-hmm. really like feel like Ooh, yes you, you you don't get to just go into that museum and not feel and, and if you can come cool out things. of it without feel <laughs> like get away from me like go away do not come near me ever right. again because there is no reason for me to like exist because i can go to the Holocaust Museum this is also in D.C. and feel. Mm-hmm. Like, I can go and I understand these, like, different feelings and emotions and things that go on. But mm-hmm. I've, I literally had, like, I remember there was this one person who was just like, when are we leaving? And I was just like, it took everything in me not to go off on this, like, child. It was a child, and I shouldn't go off on children. But um, just the fact that, like, you don't even know what you're standing in. Mm-hmm. You don't even know what... Mm-hmm. Like, I I remember hearing this, like, I'm standing on the shoulders of slaves and people who have done so much work and done so much work for everyone. Like, everybody's mm-hmm. standing on the shoulders of these people. So for somebody to go in there and, like, not feel and not know and not experience what I'm experiencing, I don't know why you would even come. Right. It just didn't make sense to me. But, like, I, like, remember I was walking through the um through the um see the what do you call it the chains and the like stuff for the Amistad like mm-hmm. the chains that they had found in the water I walked um through that one and there was a white person who was walking in front of me and they stopped and they were like they like literally turned around and hugged me and I was like absolutely Ooh. not what is happening like my mom was like Isaac, Isaac what but like they hugged me Ooh. and they were in tears. They were crying. And, like, Whoa. you know me, social work. <laughs> social worker is, like, yes. tattooed on my forehead. So people, like, react and tell me shit that I really don't need to know yeah. ever. And I'm just like, this is a lot. This is a lot. But, like, they, like, hugged me. And they were, like, they, like, pulled away. And they were, like, 
something in this room told me to do that because I feel like you needed that more than I did. And I was like, okay, that's weird. That's a lot. Like, don't know. But, like, honestly, in that space, when you're going through it and you're mm-hmm. in there with all those people and all those emotions are running around that room and, like... You might need a hug, yeah. You might need a hug. And, like, for <laughs> me, like, I pick up on everybody else's feelings and stuff. Right. So, like, I was probably, like, a whole entire emotional mess, but I didn't even, like, register it because I was just trying to read. On other people's and you're just trying to get through everything. I'm so glad that I went with two of my really good friends. Hi, Guye. Hi, Pei. Hi. I'm so glad I went with them because we do group hugs. Yeah. We're like, do you need a group hug? And literally, I feel like every 30 minutes, Paige and I were doing a group hug because it's so much. And that first floor is a lot. But I think uh, it was incredible the way that, which is another reason why I'm uncomfortable with white people going, particularly grown-ass white people, because you need to be able to draw a straight line between this and your life right now, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly what the what the first floor did really, really well is to draw a straight line between slavery and almost every major institution that exists globally. Right. Right. I mean, there was a list. I mean, it's just like it literally came from McDonald's. I laughed. Came from McDonald's. For Ten minutes. Came for for sugar, high fructose corn syrup. Right. It for was cigarettes playing. because all of Ronald these Reagan things. got drug in that museum. Oh yeah, it was drug. beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful because he drugged the... He, yes, the it's true. People. Reagan brought crack to the hood. Like, yes, it's 1,000% true. That's they not just some conspiracy receipts. that your uncle talks about while he's smoking Paul Malls and while he's smoking Newports and and playing dominoes. Now, Ronald Reagan brought crack to the hood. And black people brought literally everything to the United States. So it's just incredible to to watch to watch people go through that, specifically white people, and I can tell on their faces they're not getting that point. You know, it's just like everything. I mean, you can you can draw a direct line between slavery and insurance. Like, if Wells Fargo or any of these people have been around before there were cars, before there were organized housing, like, what kind of property do you think people were insuring right. in, in the 17 and 1800s? Like, what do you think that was? Right. I mean, banks, any, any type of sophisticated industrial revolution or technological revolution, and all the way down to the way we consume sugar. The major part of the slave trade, apart from cotton, apart from tobacco, was sugar. It was the thing that started it all. There was literally an exhibit just full of sugar and gold. Full of sugar, full of sugar Sugar and and gold. gold. Because sugar was on the same level as gold. And that was the reason why. Because they wanted what black people could produce. Which was sugar. And it's one of the reasons why we consume so much sugar now. Is because it was discovered, right? I'm doing the air quotes, right? Discovered that sugar could be harvested through um, enormous amounts of human labor, which is why everything you eat now has sugar in it. And I think that that was really one of the best parts of that first floor was that it drew so many direct connections. Like, no, this is not a reach. This is not a reach. What you're talking about is the actual history of the entire global economy Mm -hmm. was built on the backs of black folks was built on the backs of enslaved people throughout the world. Yeah. It's heavy. It was good. Oh yeah. Heavy. It was incredible. Very <sighs> heavy. My goodness. <sighs> so next question. Yeah, 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 yeah. From your experience in the museum, how do you see resistance now compared to back 
that? Mm, this is an amazing question. You're such a critical thinker. This is all I do. <laughs> like, <laughs> all I, I do, do is think. Um, same. Whew. Do you want me to go first? Because I kind of please like have because it I, I I can tell you have your answer ready. Um, please, please, because I'm still. It sounds a lot better in my head than it than it would probably sound <laughs> coming out of my mouth right now. So you go first. <laughs> so um, after I went to the museum, um, I pinpointed like things that like made me feel like a little bit more hopeful mm-hmm. about the future and like how hope um, was cultivated in a lot of like slave like during slavery during like any kind of war like how african-american people cultivated their hope um i thought it was really important because i feel hopeless i tend to feel hopeless a lot now Mm, same um just because it feels like this is a time it's 2017 and i'm thinking that this is the worst that i've ever seen um racism in the way that it's winning yeah, it's just the way that it's manipulated and changed itself and to mm-hmm. run rampant within the, the system that we exist in. It makes it really hard for me to even wake up every single day because there's no, it Same. feels like there's no point. Right. Um. So I was like, okay, so how did hope resonate to people in the past? Like, I, mm-hmm. I know, like, I can only imagine, like, I feel like I'm out of control now, but, like, if I was a slave and I had to wake up every day to work for a master, which I kind of already had to do, but that's besides the point. Um, Because capitalism. Right. um, I would imagine I'd be a lot more out of control, like, Mm -hmm. feel a lot more out of control than I do now. Yeah. So knowing that people could get through that with community and through um, love and compassion and not even like this way of doing resiliency that I don't see anymore. Mm-hmm. The the way to yes, doing resiliency. <laughs> like the way to do resiliency in a way like the way that I see and read resiliency was mm-hmm. resistance, but resistance in very particular ways. Mm-hmm. Ways that we've kind of moved past. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of we're trying to move outside of the system and not work within the system anymore, which is very clear. Like, the civil rights movement did amazing things for a lot of people, but that way of working is not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. We've clearly gotten to that point. (laughs) um, We're a little past that. But just thinking about the way, like, literally I just think about Harriet Tubman and, like, Mm -hmm. being resilient enough to be like, I'm going to not only go back, go, like, save myself, but I'm going to go back and save others. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the time, I feel like a lot of these organizations and the way that they come up, they're very Mm. self-serving. They like to co-opt pain and not recognize their own privileges within the systems that they work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's hard to challenge systems when they're backed by a whole bunch of white guilt, if that makes sense. Oh, Um, sure does. Whiteness, Mm -hmm. uh, maneuvers itself into a lot of different spaces and it has maneuvered itself into uplifting upholding systems that are supposed to be used for liberation um and i get that like yeah like being paid for your labor is important and doing all these different things but i think my issue is that harriet tubman not not my issue but seeing the way that harriet tubman did it just because Mm -hmm. just because she knew that that was right and Mm -hmm. that's going to be the most helpful thing in that moment 
I don't see that a lot anymore. In the midst of the incredible danger, right? Yeah. Because you are already free. Like, you are already free. And I could have just been free and I could have been chilling. And that's the thing that I don't see anymore. Mm. There's so many people who are in academia or in these, like, high up spaces. Ooh, having we got to talk like, about huge, academia, too, one right, day. <laughs> we can go there one day. Um, <laughs> like, but, like, th- we have these high-up conversations, but right. nobody's really deliberately going back down. It's, like, this upside-down kind of, like, understanding of, like, I'm going to get paid for my labor and all the work that I do, which is important and very valid, but at the same time, what are you doing with that coin to help others? Mm-hmm. Like, you're, like, the money that you're getting, it can be from white people, but why aren't the white people just giving money to the people that need it the most? Uh-huh. Rather than giving it to you, who is functioning and thriving and surviving although because of capitalism and the way that we see people worthy of support and help because we can also talk about how I think GoFundMes are the future of the revolution and GoFundMes and crowdfunding and you caring that is the true measure of whether someone is willing to do the real work because you'll donate $10 to the Red Cross because that's legitimate but this black woman who is probably only going to get 20 cents of the Red Cross's money of the $10 that you donated. Right. You can give that $10 to her directly, but no, because she could be using that for anything. Right. And so I think that, anyway, let me stop. Um, I have an answer now. The resistance. <laughs> resistance in the museum looked so much like self-determination. Yeah. And I was already on a track similar to that anyway because of how... I started my activist life really pushing for systemic changes and pushing for, particularly as an activist in college, wanting administration to change the culture of universities Mm -hmm. and wanting space and wanting to be heard and wanting demands met and things like that. Um, But there was something particularly, this is where I'm going to go back to the free black towns. Mm -hmm. There was something particularly freeing about that exhibit in particular because it was the it was the definition of self-determination right particularly for black folks and resistance I was trying to figure out what my resistance was going to look like in the future. And so this this museum trip was so timely for me because for me, I saw that exhibit and I was like, that's what my is going to look like. That is what my resistance is going to look like for at least the near future. Getting my people together and being self-determined and building whether or not white supremacy wants to get its shit together. Yeah. Right. This idea that that. And I, I I get that work. I get the work of policy change. I get the work of electing, you know, good people into offices to make the most out of a system that is trash. I get it. I get but it. I get it. I get it. Together. Right. And and on the ground, it doesn't do a whole lot for commu- for for communities. Right? right. It doesn't say, as my mom would say, but how are you gonna get this bill paid? Right? right. It doesn't do that. Right. And so I think that that was how. It really put words to the kind of work that I want to do going forward was that exhibit in the museum about the free black towns and how towns were built and how they were self-determinant in the way they were going to run in their own systems of protection and their own systems of growth and their systems of growing and cooking food and their systems of church and worship and, 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 and all kinds of things and their community on their terms was a form of resistance. And a lot of times in like current 
ages of activism, that's not the sexy work, right? right? The sexy work is going to go on speaking tours at colleges and universities to do racism one-on-one, one-on-one to a bunch of white kids, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's about speaking at all kinds of White House summits. It's about being sponsored by corporations who will hold conferences for you. It's about speaking at academic conferences and, you know, um, running for offices. That's like the sexy work. Um, so the unsexy work is doing that that community building, whether or not the system chooses to get its shit together. Right. And that is how how revolution and resistance was changed for me at that museum because it was able to put words to the work that I'm trying to do in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's real. That's real. Want to take another break? Yes. Okay. Let's do that real Let's quick. breathe, and then we'll be back. Yes. And we're back. Hey. So. This is a lot, y'all. Yeah, this is unpacking. I'm. Y'all better listen to this shit, too, because right. I don't have time. This is a labor. Literally, somebody write a dissertation do for something. this podcast, because I'm We're deep. doing a lot. Um. So the next question is, how do we do resistance in a world where everyone thinks they are the key factor or have all the answers? Ooh. And that specifically is to point out um, resistant leaders. I put air quotes around resistant. Uh, resistance leaders, um, the ones who are platformed and positioned higher. Um, you can take that as like national, uh, statewide, or local. But regardless, they Uh exist in your communities. Mm -hmm. We know them. We Mm -hmm. see them. We come for them behind closed doors because if we come for them in public, they'll smear us on social media because that's what people do. Got it. Okay. No tea, no shame. That's all tea and all shade. All tea, all sugar, sweet Georgia tea and (laughs) all shade under the Georgia oak trees. Um, I think... (sighs) I can't take myself out of that equation because in a lot of spaces I end up being the leader, right? Mm-hmm. I was one of the leaders of a student activist group. Yeah. Um and that taught me a lot about the way leadership happens and the way that it works. Mm-hmm. Um and so I really try I try really hard not to get defensive about the questions around leadership yeah. because having been in that leadership role it is a very vulnerable space it is a very lonely space and it's not as fun as it looks on TV um and so it's very very hard for me to answer that question without going you don't even know what this is like to even be because a lot of people don't know what that's like to yeah. be the one that that folks look to and to be the one to have to make decisions. And people um, back to my point about honesty, people are honest about the fact that they're a lot more passive than they think they are. And they're passive because that means if you own up to a decision, that means you have to take a responsibility for how that plays out. Mm-hmm. Right. So in a lot of activist spaces, you end up. Um, I'm just speaking for me using I statements, right? I ended up being the person that had to say, this is our decision, right? Because you're in a room full of people and you're like, what is the decision? And everybody goes, well, it doesn't really matter to me. Okay. It's like being in partnership with somebody who never know where they want to go eat, but every place you pick is trash to them. It's kind of like that. Okay. So it's kind of, so th- that's the kind of um, thing I'm trying to do. And uh, I was actually... Um, 
in another interview talking about this and how leadership in activist spaces is really lonely. And a lot of times you end up being someone that you don't want to be that day. Mm-hmm. Right. You end up being the one who yells at your people and you ain't you weren't trying to be that person. But I'm like, damn, I need you to make a decision. Right. Yeah. Like, I will not do this by myself. Mm-hmm. Or why did you not show up? Like, I end up having to be somebody I didn't want to be that day. Okay. Right. And so um, then there's this like deification that you didn't ask for. Right. Then nobody I didn't ask to be like. Leadership didn't mean I asked for, like, this pedestal kind of thing. You're so beautiful. You're so amazing. You're perfect. I'm like, no. Yes, because beautiful. And no. <laughs> I'm not yeah. perfect. These are not things. Right. And so when you end up being deified in a way that you didn't really ask for, it's hard to deal with um, criticism. It's yeah. hard to deal with criticism because you're like, but I never told you I was getting everything right. I just said that I was going to lead. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if if other folks had different definitions of leadership than I had. Oh, you weren't all working from the same definition um, of, of leadership and work, mm-hmm. but it becomes really hard to take criticism, yeah. right? And because people feel like they know you and that they're entitled to invade your body um, in the ways that you produce labor, people feel like they can attack you on a character level rather than on a work level, mm-hmm. right? So it never became Jamila made this mistake because she was in a rush or she had to say something, or she just wasn't informed. It became Jamila made this decision because she's a terrible person, mm-hmm. right? Because when you put someone on a pedestal and they make a mistake, it must mean they were trash. Yeah. And so that's hard to navigate spaces. And I'm probably not answering your question at all because um, as a, a person who ends up emerging or being selected or voluntold as a leader in a lot of spaces, yeah. it's... Um, it's often fucked up the way leaders get treated. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, having <laughs> said that, <laughs> like, not this switch. Like you just like literally right. like turned like flipped on and off the switch. Now, so, having said that, um, it is very easy to get caught up in a narcissism of leadership and wokeness. It is very easy to get caught up in the narcissism of, well, if if nobody wants to make a decision, then you don't have a right to question me because I'm the one who's always doing the things, right? It's very easy to take out a piece of paper and start listing all the things that you've done, all the things that you've done for others, all the things that you've done, all the decisions that you've made. Well, I paid for you and I wrote... I, gave you a ride and I did this and I I mean you can literally start and I made this decision and I started this group and I started this and I started that um you end up making um you end up making a really good case for your narcissism right it's like well I don't have to be I don't have to feel bad about my mistakes because that's what happens when you have to do everything and that is a terrible place to be and I think that is what what causes um the work to be hard because I don't think it's so much I know everything it's I do everything mm-hmm. because people have a really warped idea about the work that they're able to do mm-hmm. and they don't understand how capitalism has has infiltrated the way they see work and therefore the way they see community mm-hmm. right your boss is supposed to be the kind of person 
they're the boss because they do the most work. Yeah. And so it's hard to question them or hold them accountable because they do the most work. But really, it's the employees who actually do the most, quote unquote, work. And it's just the boss who's kind of managing the work. But it's the boss who gets the privilege of not being held accountable. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's hard because that method of capitalism and, and corporate way of work mm-hmm is often um, replicated in activist spaces because it's all we know, yeah. right? It's all we know. We all claim we want to be new, we want to be different, and then we still run our meetings based on Robert's Rules of Order and all of these weird things that we learned in our organizations in high school and college, yeah. right? Like, we also not trying to do the work to create new, new ways of, of running shit, And I think that that's something that's very, very necessary. Or you're always going to run into this situation where you have a leader who is either narcissistic or toxic or or inexperienced or or all of those things um, that that leads an organization into a different direction in a direction that doesn't reflect the needs of the people. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. No, I've, I guess when I would ask that question, I was um, trying to really tackle the way that, like, resistance is ran in this, like, hierarchical way. Like, mm-hmm. rather, like, looking at resistance as something that's ran differently. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the time, whenever you think of liberation, you think of organizations. You mm-hmm. think of, like, right. figureheads, like Martin right. Luther King, Malcolm right. X, um, Angela Davis, like, names of mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. It's never seen as a group of people resisting. When Mm -hmm. I think of Black Lives Matter, I think of people. Mm -hmm. I don't think of an organization. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what worries me about the way that I even do and show up. Because I don't want to show up and be seen as a deity. I don't want to be idolized or put on a pedestal. I want my work to be useful. And I just want that. Like, mm. I don't, um, when it comes to, like, organizational things and, like, organizing and stuff like that, uh, most of the time, like, I have always talk about me being on the front line and, like, putting myself out there and stuff like that. And at this point, like, it's hard. Like Very hard. It's very hard to put yourself out there, but, like, there's so much other work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Like, we talk, like, you talk about healing and stuff like that. Who's healing the people who are on the front lines? Mm-hmm. How is that happening? Who are the care bears? Who are the people who might not be on the oh, front lines bears. doing what they're doing, <laughs> but you can go back and talk to them and like unload on them, but they weren't on the front lines, but they're mm-hmm. still doing the same amount of work as you are. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like even like weighing work on like what kind of work is being done and who's doing more work and stuff like that right. is already an issue in itself. Because it's already, that is rooted in so many different things. That's rooted in, number one, ableism, right? right? That's rooted, that is incredibly rooted in ableism to be able to list off the things that you showed up to, off the things that you did, all the things that you were present for, which a lot of the times, if we were also honest, we would we would admit to ourselves that we measured work off of physical presence. Right. You were at A, B, C, and D thing. Um, you did A, B, C, and D thing at this particular place, which, which gives us a lot of, of, of it clouds us from like barriers to access, right? Like everybody can't get everywhere. Right. You know what I mean? Everybody ain't got time to be ever. So then what does, what does that even mean? Um, and I think if we all kind of worked on our definition about what the work means, 
I think that that would be better because at least if you think that that's what the work is, then your goal should be to get with people who think also think that that's the work. Yeah. Because I don't function well with people who think that the work is electing the right person into office. And I know that. And so that's not the work that I join. (laughs) That's not the work that I join. And on a more nuanced level, do I think that you're making me think, do I think that work is about showing up? So if it's about showing up, then I need to gather the people who like showing up to stuff. And that's what we do. We show up to stuff. And so then you have these pockets of people who think the work is the same. And maybe y'all meet twice a year and decide how y'all are going to make a group effort or something. But other than that, y'all do your own shit and just make that work. So that's the thing. Like I, and that even goes like, um, whenever I think about resistance in the way that liberation will happen, Mm -hmm. um, I think this like skips down like a couple of questions. So I'm just going to get to it. Yeah. Let's just get there. Cause we really, that's where we try to be. We're just, that's where we try to be. be. Okay. So this is how podcasts be long as fuck. And I'll be like, I ain't trying to listen to that shit, but really this is why I I couldn't have this any shorter. No, there's nothing. It would have to be in two parts. There's literally nothing that we can do. Uh, Okay. So I get it now. (laughs) (laughs) This is why they're so long. I get it now. I get it. Okay. So, does resistance have space for oppressors or oppressive systems? There's a two-part question. Uh, How do we work outside of the system if we're constantly in it? Oh, Christ. Um, all right. So. <laughs> because clearly we can't talk about oppressors without talking about oppressive systems. Right. So you have to talk about both of them at the same time. And I went through these questions Um so, like, behind-the-scenes thing, during one of our breaks, Isaac and I went and looked at this question, and we had to, we started to do something. We, we, started we were to, going. We but... were going there, and Isaac was like, wait until we hit record again. <laughs> um, and so what I was saying during that moment was that it is very easy to say, well, we're all oppressors, and so, yes. And I think that makes sense because we all oppress in different ways, which is 100% true. Valid. Which is 100% true. That is an objective fact. There is nobody on this earth that does not oppress in some way. Right. Right, because of the way that our systems work and the way that we exist within them. But I think that is a cop-out that a lot of people give to stop conversation about this question that you're asking. Because you know what I'm asking. About restorative justice and about about community and about redemption, right? And one of my favorite community activists and resistors is um, my friend Trinity and challenged a space with a question like this. Mm -hmm. And I like when she... um, When she comes into a space and says this, you know she about to fuck it up. A lie is being told, right? And... In this case, her statement was, a lie is being told either people are redeemable or they're not. And, of course, I'm still thinking about that, and I'm thinking about that in response to your question. But your first question was, is there room for oppressors in resistance or liberation or something? Either way. Something. Um, It's easy for me to say, well, we're all oppressors, so of course there is, but I think that that's a cop-out, right? Because even a direct question, does my liberation have space for homophobes? Absolutely not. It doesn't. Does my revolution have space for ableism and imperialism and capitalism as we know them? No, no, not. No, you don't get to openly embrace homophobia (laughs) and be part of my of my liberation work Mm -hmm. and be part of my space for liberation. I saw a tweet that went viral. Um, Some journalist 
um, the tweet was along the lines of, in my ideal world, people who put up the black power, the black power fist, and people who do the Nazi salute can exist in harmony, right? Absolutely not. And that's like, terribly absolutely pro- not. Right, it's terribly problematic. But then what really got me was the critical response of. Why are Nazis in your ideal world? <laughs> like, why are Nazis in, real in your life, ideal like... world? Right. So, in my ideal world, well, why are Nazis in your ideal world? A. And then, of course, we can talk about all the other nuances of, like, are you comparing Nazis to black power? They're not the same thing. But anyway, um, yeah. that is what I'm talking about. So, is there room for oppressors in that way? No. Is there room for people who are like, this is the way I oppress Hi, my name's Jamila. I am a Christian, and I understand that Christianity is an oppressive religion, and I have and will continue to oppress with the faith that I practice. Right. Is there room for me? I would hope so. Right. Hi, my name is Jamila, and I am unlearning a lot of the damage that patriarchy has taught me and the ways that I endorse it and play into it. Right. Right. Like, is there room for me? Yeah. Is there room for someone who is like, hi, Jamila, I am a recovering homophobe and I believed these things and I'm really trying to learn. I know now that there is a better way. I just don't know what it is. Is there room for me? Yeah. But is there room for me? Hi, Jamila, I'm a homophobe and I'm trying to get liberated, but understand that I don't have to agree with you all the time. No, there's not. And that part... um, that part of liberation work is also part of the way I resist and mm-hmm. protecting my energy yeah. and protecting my people mm-hmm. from folks who are not trying to do better because right. because that also goes back to your question or your statement about everybody being perfect and deified, right? Because we're all doing that work. We're all doing the work of consistently unlearning things that we were taught in order to do this life together. So, no, it's not fair for you to try to come into the fold and immediately tell me these are all the things that I'm not willing to let go of Mm -hmm. because we're doing that. And so if that is not a part of your self-work, no, there is no room for oppressors in resistance in that way. Yeah. Like, personally, I asked this question. Um... And even, like, the oppressive systems part because we're constantly in them. But, like, Mm -hmm. because it's been a battle to try and give space to things that space is, they're not going to, like, there's not enough space for them to fit. So what Um, do you mean? So, like, my biggest issue for myself, and this is work that I need to get better at, um, Mm. is reserving and reclaiming my time in the famous <laughs> words of Maxine Waters, um, because I don't. Um, I give my time to people who don't deserve it. I give my energy to people who don't deserve it, and it is not because I want to fix them or make them better or anything of that nature. It's simply because I'm trying to work on myself at that same moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. telling people things and saying things to people mm-hmm. and giving my time and all my energy and exhausting myself because... I don't want to actually deal with what's going on here and deal Mm. with the unpacking and the unlearning and all this other stuff. And at the same time, I'm doing that while trying to engage with people because I felt like that was the way that I was going to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where um, I remember my, I can pinpoint this moment, my senior year after I graduated, I was like um, crying over Philando Castile and... Mm -hmm. um, 
Dr. Starling. Yeah, like all mm-hmm. that whole entire time period. Um, I was in Tulsa at the time, so like even mm-hmm. all of that, like yeah, just it was a lot. And so I was crying and I was thinking about like how I was just so tired. Like mm-hmm. I was so exhausted mm-hmm. of like trying to like do all this work and do all this liberating work and stuff. But at the same time, being oppressed by the people who were, or not oppressed because I wasn't out yet, but, like, Mm. I was working with a lot of people who were homophobic and using Christianity to talk about how, like, queer people and gay people are, like, willing to, like, You can name that as oppressing you. Yeah. Yeah. You can name that as oppressing you. Because they were oppressing me, like, at the same time, because I was trying to, like, work with these groups of people, but they were also homophobic. And I gave them that space because they were doing good work, like, Mm. air quotes, good work, because Mm -hmm. what they were doing for the black community was amazing, Uh, and I thought it was so good. But not the whole black community, But not the whole black community. Because you black. You lag, so you lag. But um, (laughs) it's, like, fascinating because I, it's so hard for me to even think about this now because, like, if we're constantly perpetrating, like, oppression and stuff like that and we're not willing to unlearn it, then why even do these people have the pedestals and the deities and all of these things. If you're looking up to somebody who, like, will say something on, like, social media or something like that, but turn around and do, like, a microaggression and, like, not acknowledge it and be like, uh, it was just a joke, like, kind of thing, I'd never really know if somebody is there or not. Like, if Mm. I should be giving them space or if I should. Because it's so hard Mm. for me to, like, I guess, like, protective like protect like my protective Protect bubble energy, like you're like yeah. trying to like let people in and being like oh my god they were doing so well and something happened like w- i need to push them all the way back out so you're talking more about i guess where's the room for people to make mistakes yeah and i guess that's what room? like yeah do we have like it, how much space is too much space for restorative justice Ooh, personally, I think that's a whole nother podcast topic on well, restorative justice. I mean, we can justice. hold it. We I would love it. to hold that. No, I really would. I would love to hold that because okay. I think that that's really and a really important thing to talk about. It's like we could bring Trinity on. Trinity, if yes. you're listening, come talk and to Cody, us. And Cody, because Cody, yes. this is also for you. This is a really good topic. Um, because how do we talk about healing our communities, mm-hmm. and how do we talking talk about a um. Like, what does restorative justice mean? I'm also really looking into those things um, as someone who's trying to figure out how to build whether or not white supremacy gets his shit together. I'm interested in, in words like restorative justice. I'm interested in words um, like joy as resistance. I'm interested in words like something I ran into called emotional emancipation. And we got to talk off camera about that shit because that is 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 a thing. Um, emotional emancipation. Like, what do all... I'm like, literally right. broken. Like, what? Commu- right. <laughs> And community redemption and what does it mean? So if you say, okay, we're going to abolish police, we're going to abolish all systems of accountability as we know them, how do we work to build something different? Hmm. What does that mean? All right, so so what does that mean? What does accountability and, and safety and protection and all those things look like absent of the systems that we know? That means, yes, Isaac, you're absolutely right. We're going to have to find space for mistake making. And see what that means. Now, what I will say, which I hope will be the catalyst for um, my next podcast um, visit or um, what I'm trying to say is I hope I can remember the shit when next time I come on. <laughs> um, you know, because I'll be trying to be cute, but it's just it's it's not working. That's what I'm really trying to say. I hope I can remember the shit next time is that I'm really tired of conversations around restorative justice that center 
um, the oppressor, the center, the offender. Um, I don't understand how that works, because what if we ask the question from the perspective of what are we doing to make sure the survivor heals rather than what are we doing to make sure the offender learns? Those are two separate questions Those and two, two separate, separate outcomes yeah. and two separate methods and approaches to restorative justice. And how do you combine the two? Because I feel like that's the only And way how you do, do you it. combine the two? Oh, right? we just opened up a, a, like a wormhole. Okay, well, that's right, another we podcast. Have to that's stop another that. Podcast. Is there one more question, two more questions, um, or whatever you're trying to get through? Because that, we will the, do that later. Okay, so <laughs> final thoughts of like all of this about resistance, liberation, mm. um, throwing it all out there. I'll just say like this is very powerful. This is amazing. I have loved this conversation this so far. Much. Um, so much. So much. And I feel like I've like learned a lot about myself and you and the way that we're going to continue right. making this work. Right. Um, Being friends. Uh, it's just a lot. Just a lot. A lot a lot is happening. Oh wow. Final thoughts. Um Final thoughts. I always think so much about people who don't have communities and spaces like this. Yeah. Um, so I want to yell into the void that under the sound of my voice, I love Transformers and I love how at the end of every movie, um, Optimus Prime is like makes a recording to all of the other Autobots who right. may or may not be in space. So calling out to my other Autobots, um, you're not alone. And if you're interested in community and healing and restorative justice and you are under the sound of our voices, know that there are other people who are feeling the same things and that you um, are worthy of healing and restorative justice for no other reason than the fact that you exist exactly as you are. Um, so I always think of I always think of people who don't have this kind of space, who don't yeah. have people to like kiki about liberation with. Yeah. Um, and I love community. And I love community. I think that's the only way to get it done. Mm -hmm. I love community. I love dreaming. Um, I think that in itself is an act of liberation. Um, and I know because I know how it feels to have it taken away. Yeah. So a couple, the hardest part about the post-Trump election was that I felt like my ability to dream was taken away for a little while. Because yeah. for a little while I was always like, oh, I can't do shit. You know what I mean? Like the white supremacy is winning. I can't do shit. I can't do that nothing. Hopelessness the is, hopelessness is so yeah. much there. And so now I realize that dreaming is is resistance. And so I love to dream. I love to dream in community. And... I really am, am sticking with the theme that I learned from the museum, <laughs> that part of resistance is building what you need and addressing the immediate needs of your community, whether oppressors decide to get their shit together or not, because they won't. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what resistance looks like for me. That's what that museum taught me. And I'm really excited to get to get community together and have this conversation. Cause I think that doing this mm -hmm. with more folks and doing this, um, maybe not with microphones in our faces, but maybe like tape recorders yeah. <laughs> um, or something like that would be incredible mm -hmm. and figure out how do we heal ourselves? How do we heal our communities Yeah, and what that looks like? Yeah. I've been, you know me, I stay dreaming. Right. Um, I always imagine like this is going to be a lot bigger. It's mm -hmm. going to be like, so me talking about how like why do people get platforms and all this other stuff but like you want also, a platform. I want also a platform. Like, also you have a platform. Also right? I have a platform. This is what you're doing. And um but I also would love for like 
fireside conversations that are around the things that we talk about here mm-hmm. or like places where people if they want to come and join and want the energy to like have the energy to do it mm-hmm. and are able to come like have these conversations because like I don't think and I think this is the most important thing about my podcast is that I'm not like I center voices of people who I love and I care about, but I know there's five million other voices out so there. So many other people. There's so many other people who have so many other things to say, and I would love for people to hear it. That's why I tell y'all that you can email me yes. at <laughs> like thetablepod at gmail.com. You got your own Gmail shit. Look, She's I so got my cute. own Gmail. Look I'm not you. playing with it y'all. It is official. This it's is official. official. Yeah, yeah. And then like definitely just send a DM a message on to the Twitter, which is at the underscore table underscore pod. Yep. Or the Facebook page. Like Absolutely. Hit me up too. Um I'm Sunny Day Jones. I ain't gonna spell that right now because I'm sure it's gonna be all in the show notes and yeah, in the you know, things wrong. all on Twitter. <laughs> Literally but, put everything in the bottom. Yeah, Twitter, follow me on Facebook and all of these things and, and let's dream together because I also think that this is the only way that it's going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to build other things. Yeah. And if the revolution came tomorrow, we have to be repaired, prepared to rebuild and to build new things. And so we have to be talking about what we're going to replace this shit with when it is dismantled. Not if, but when it is dismantled, mm-hmm. there's got to be um, some type of shit we're going to replace it with. So why not just practice? Yeah. Let's just, just practice. practice. I just have those conversations even. Yeah. Yeah. Isaac, I love you. I love you too. Hi. This was fun. You're gonna, we're gonna do this again because mm-hmm. obviously, like, we have so much more to talk about. We do, but everything, families, partnerships. Hey, Anthony, because just because he's gonna be so trash if I don't say his name over the. Are you serious? Internet. Yes, 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 yes. Anthony's my partner. I love him so much, and he know he a lot, so it's fine. I'm fine. He know he's so fine. All right, y'all. Thank you for coming and joining us at the table. Thanks so much, y'all. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.